Sport on on SAFM. Okay, let's talk tennis now. And uh, French Open, Rafael Nadal doing it again. It's so hard to bet against him at the French Open. I think he's only lost twice since he started playing there. And of course, uh, Iga Schweintek winning the women's signals. Uh, no one expected her to win. I don't think a lot of people knew who she was before the tournament. But let's talk to South African tennis great Kevin Curran just to get his thoughts on what happened at the French Open, which was not during the usual time, of course, that we used to seeing the French Open. Kevin, good evening and thank you again for speaking to us here on SAFM. We really appreciate your time, sir. On your pleasure to be so, and uh, lovely to be on your show. Yes, French Open, uh, just uh, some amazing uh, tennis played by both champions. Uh, Igor Swiatek, as you rightfully said, she came out of nowhere uh, a year ago. She was 800 in the world, and now she's uh, the French Open champion. But I think uh, when you analyze and you, you look at what she's done at that French Open, the fact that she ran through the entire draw, uh, literally hammering every, every opponent and winning comfortably, makes a statement and makes one wonder whether this is uh, going to be a champion of many Grand Slams to come. Uh, to beat the number one player in the world in the quarterfinals, Simona Halep, 6-2-6-1, is quite a feat in itself. And then the way in which she dispatched uh, Sophia Hennon in the final, also comfortable, 6-4-6-1, says a lot about a a 19-year-old player that she's that equipped in a major championship. I didn't even know that she had won the Junior French Open. I think she mentioned it after one of her interviews. How often do players make that progression from winning the juniors to the senior title? It's very seldom, actually. It's it's quite an interesting how many good players are uh, in the junior ranks that cannot make that 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 move up to to the pro ranks, and then to go on and win major championships. Very very seldom do you see that happen. It happens occasionally, but not very often at all. And in fact, to make the switch over in one year's time is is most unusual. You've got to have a super talent to to be able to do that. And there's not many that have been around in the game of tennis over the last sort of 40 or 50 years that have been able to make that transition within one year. So quite amazing. And and like I was saying, I think she's going to be one of the future superstars of the sport. And what's impressed you about her, Kevin? Because I watched her in that final against Sophia Kenin. She was very aggressive. She remained positive throughout that match. Yes, so she takes the ball very early uh, for the trained eye. She steps in. She's got a wonderful backhand. She can control the point. She can move it around. Very good return of serve. So she takes the initiative on on the opponent's serve very early in a point. And once she's got control of a point, she's able to move her opponent around at will. And she's got power as well, so she can finish the point quite quite uh, comfortably. Because the, her fi- the, her opponent in the finals, Sophia Kennedy, had won the Australian Open mm-hmm. earlier this year, and she is uh, tough not to crack. She's a really good competitor, and uh, the way that Iga handled her in that final was just uh, absolutely amazing. So yeah, like I say, this is one of the uh, champions that uh, we need to keep a lookout in the future. She may well uh, go on to dominate for the next few years. Some will say that this French Open was watered down because some of the top players were not playing. Is that fair on her? I think, uh, you know, if you really look at it, there may be one or two that were missing. Not like the US Open had quite a few more players that missed the US Open. In fact, our French Open champion on the men's side, Rafa Nadal, chose not to play in the US Open and rather to prepare for the uh, French Open because they're two contrasting surfaces. But I don't think that's a fair enough statement. She beat the number one player in the world. She's beaten the number four player, uh, the fourth seed as well. And, uh, yeah, I just uh, I think enough players played in the event that uh, this the caliber of, of people that she beat and the way in which she beat them, I don't think you can take anything away from her title. She 
is uh, she had a wonderful tournament. And one must keep in mind that the Williams sisters who have dominated the sport, particularly Serena, mm. uh, but even her sister Venus before that, are now in the sunset years of their career. So they're not the dominant forces that they once were. Once were. And as we saw at this year's uh, French Open, Serena had to withdraw, but she struggled again at the U.S. Open. Uh, she's not quite the dominant force she once was. So, so yeah, the uh, the opportunity is there for a young player to come through and to to really establish themselves now that the Williams sisters, who were so dominant for so long, are no longer a major force to be reckoned with. Well, not too many opportunities for the men because that big three is still going strong. I mean, Rafael Nadal claiming a record equaling 13th, well, a record extending 13th French Open title. You obliterated Novak Djokovic, 6-love, six 6-2 six and 7-5. Was this his finest performance of the lot, Kevin Curran? You know, it's a interesting observation. One could could say the way in which he dominated. He showed up and he was firing on all cylinders. He brought his A game, and uh, as the tournament progressed, he got stronger and stronger. And I was really impressed with the way he was able to dominate Djokovic, which he hasn't been able to do in the past. Djokovic is the one guy that actually has a a really good winning record against uh, Nadal, not on clay, but he was one of only two guys to beat uh, Rafa mm. Nadal at the French Open. He beat them in 2015. But yeah, Nadal was fire, firing on all cylinders. Keep in mind that the first set was six love, but in that six love, the first five games, four of them went to Deuce, and it was Deuce Ad, and could have gone either way. And Rafa, mm. was, he was so sharp on the day that he was he was winning all the big points. And I think uh, he got on top, and when he's on top like that, and uh, he gets a break early in the second, he's won the first, he's a very difficult guy to, to beat, come from behind, because he is so dominating and so physically dominating on the court. But I must say that uh, I was expecting a much closer encounter. Uh, Nadal just played a phenomenal match on the day. It is what we might refer to his backyard. The guys won 13 out of the last 15 years. This has to be one of the great feats in all of sport. Uh, it's absolutely phenomenal when you think of what he's achieved. And people tend to forget that major championships are always played three out of five sets. So it's an, the absolute test, litmus test of, of greatness. And here he is. He's only lost two matches and won 100. It's just a phenomenal record that uh, Nadal and unquestionably, I cannot see that record being ever, you know, uh, I can't see anybody repeating it. And uh, he's no question he's the king of clay. Uh, just an, and he emphasized that with just a dominant performance on Sunday. The other guy that beat him at the French Open, if it ever comes up in a quiz, is Robin Soderlink in 2009. Kevin has already mentioned Djokovic in 2015. So remember the name Soderlink because it might, Soderlink, it might just come up in the quiz. Now, he didn't play the US Open. You've already touched on that. He decided to concentrate on the French Open. Was that a master stroke? Did he seem fresher um, at Roland Garros? Yes, I think there's no question that was a master stroke. He, you know, between him and Djokovic, they're chasing Federer's record, and that's 20 grand slams. Mm. And so, you know, there's the debate of the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And so one has to take into consideration if he were to end up with the most amount of grand slams, that's definitely one of the key issues or one of the major issues that one has to take into consideration. So he's had quite a few injury problems. He's had a knee problem, which we kept him out last year, quite a bit of the season. And so I thought a masterstroke on his part because hard courts, which is where the U.S. Open is played uh, or played on, it's actually not good for your knees as well. So I thought by taking that time off, focusing on the clay, which is what he grew up on and which is by far and away his best surface, was a great way to, to get himself ready for the French Open and not have that because 
the way they had to reschedule due to COVID, the tournaments were very, very close to one another. So it didn't give him a lot of time to make the transition. But he went to Rome, and if you recall, he lost in Rome to to Schwarzman. He lost to Schwarzman in the quarters. Yeah, it was a huge upset. And uh, it was only two out of three sets, but regardless, a huge upset. And everybody was a bit concerned about Nadal coming into the tournament. But as I said earlier, as he got into the tournament and he started winning the first, second, third round playing these matches, he got into the tournament, his game improved. And uh, by the finals, he, like I said, he was firing on all cylinders. So, yes, a very good decision by he and his team to pass on the U.S. Open. Now he's tied Roger Federer. And the question remains now, what will he do in uh, 2021, because one must keep in mind he's won 13 French Opens, four U.S. Opens, two Wimbledons, and only one Australian Open. So the Australian Open will be the first one up in 2021. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether he's got enough gas in the tank to to go through another French Open uh, next year. He may have to wait until the French Open next year to to possibly beat uh, Federer's record. Obviously, Federer will be back trying at the Australian Open, as will Djokovic. But he's uh, three grand slams. He's trading by three grand slams as it stands right now. Okay, let's just take a one voice note here for the tennis. Good evening, Tavisu. Um, let's give credit to Iga Swiatek, man. I thought she caused an upset for me. She she, she played very well. As for Mr. Nadal, hey, he's the king of the clay as well. Uh, he throttled Novak Djokovic. Novak couldn't even play his game, to be honest. Congratulations to Iga, Poland's finest. This is Lisi Vigil Sabi, live and direct from Pretoria. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that voice note. Now, the final question, Mr. Kevin Karen. Nadal is on 20 Grand Slam titles. Fedra is on 20. Obviously, he's a few years older, but he's still playing. Djokovic is on 17. Is this what's going to separate these three greats when they stop playing? Are we going to have to look at these numbers now to, to tell who was the best? No question, this will play a big role in, in trying to make that call. Uh, they will also take into account number of weeks at number one in the world and the number of Masters titles won. Mm-hmm. And right now, they, they're pretty close on all of those. Djokovic is chasing, he's past Nadal, but he's chasing uh, Federer for number week, number of weeks at number one. Uh, and keep in mind the ages, because Djokovic is, Djokovic is the youngest of the three, so he has that in his favor. And if you really want to analyze the three players, uh, it's a generation that I don't think we'll see in our lifetime again, that uh, three such great players, they all bring different dimensions to the game, different styles, and that's what makes it so exciting. But uh, yeah, it definitely will come down to, to major championships, and particularly if one player is able to, to really get out there. Everybody that plays the game kind of thinks Djokovic has got the advantage because of his age and the fact that he's been able to dominate both Nadal and Federer in the major championships the last uh, few years. So it's very going to be very interesting for tennis to see how it plays out, but let's uh, enjoy this incredible <laughs> win by Rafa Nadal, 13 French Opens, just unbelievable. Incredible. And that was Djokovic's first defeat of 2020, by the way. Thank you for speaking to us, Mr. Kevin Karen. Always a pleasure to get your insight on tennis matters. Thank you, Tobisa. All the very best. Thank you. Wimbledon finalist, of course, in 1985. Australian Open finalist in 1984. In 85, he lost to Boris Becker, a 17-year-old Boris Becker. I don't know how many of you were around then. Who remembers that? Who watched that final? Because obviously I don't remember it, but um, he was... 17 years old, Boris Becker, when uh, he lost to when he beat Kevin Curran in that in that uh, Wimbledon final in 1985.
It's our very own there, South African. We're going to talk NBA next. At SAFM Radio and at Tabiso Musia on Twitter. So no more waking up early for some of us. We've been up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. South African time, trying to catch as much basketball as we can. And we did it again uh, this morning, and the L.A. Lakers did it to claim their first title in uh, 10 years since 2010, led by LeBron James, of course. And we are joined on the line now by Megan McPeak, just to get in, just to get her insight into uh, the NBA Finals. She'll give us what she thought and what does this mean for the Lakers and for LeBron James. And Megan is a play-by-play. I play broadcaster, monumental sports and entertainment. Megan, good evening from us here in South Africa. Thank you very much for being able to speak to us today. Tabiso, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And hello, South Africa. Thank you. You've got so many basketball fans here in South Africa that, that wake up early. Did you see the series going to six games? Because many people thought the Lakers would make light work of the heat. I actually did, believe it or not. <laughs> I thought that this would be a long series just because of the uh, fortitude that this you know, young and athletic Miami Heat team does have. And, of course, when you look at you know, Pat Riley being the orchestrator of putting this team together and then Eric Spolstra at the helm as the head coach, I actually didn't think that this would be a quick series. I didn't think that the Lakers would sweep as powerful and prophetic uh, as, as a roster that they do have. I thought that... Uh, this would be a grinded-out series. I got a little nervous in the first two games, though, when the Lakers uh, handled them pretty easily. But mm. uh, then we saw, you know, the the, the Heat sit sit into it and, and make adjustments and figure out how that they could utilize what they had against this uh, very long and very big uh, Lakers roster. So I, I was happy for as much basketball as possible because, as you all know, we're not sure when exactly the NBA season will start again. Yeah, and what can the Heat take out of these finals? Because nobody even gave them a chance to make it into the NBA finals, and we saw players like Jimmy Butler stand up and be counted there. What do they take out of this as a group? Yeah, to be so, I think it's it's going to be interesting what they can take out of it because, you know, as you said, no one really expected them to do much against a, a strong Lakers, uh, LeBron and Anthony Davis led team, and I think we saw. Uh, you know, a great emergence in the playoffs of Jimmy Butler. We saw some great shooting from uh, Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero. Yep. And uh, we saw Bam Adebayo continue to be as as amazing and exciting as he had been this entire NBA season, especially with the restart in the bubble. And then, you know, Gordon Dragic doing what he did this entire regular season, unfortunately went down with that plantar fascia uh, tendon tear early in the series, and, and it affected him and what they were able to do. I think if they had him for the full series, it might have been a little bit closer. It might have been a different um, a different uh, way the series went. I don't necessarily think Miami wins the series with a healthy Goran Dragic, but we may see a full seven-game series because of uh, Goran's experience. I mean, he, he, he was on those Miami Heat teams early on uh, with Bosch, uh, D-Wade, and, and LeBron, so... I think what the Heat can take from this is now build off of this, build off of the momentum, build off of the experience. And keep in mind, we know that everybody is going to be going after Giannis Antetokounmpo. So if if Miami could be successful, if Giannis decides he does not want to stay in Milwaukee, him beside a Jimmy Butler uh, takes the Miami Heat into a different category, especially in the East. And that is, you know, two players who can 
go up against the team in Brooklyn with a Kevin Durant and a Kyrie Irving. So I definitely think the Miami Heat can build off of what they learned and the experience that they garnered, uh, not only in the restart in the bubble, but as well, too, throughout the playoffs because they went up against juggernauts and they were never the team that everybody expected to come out of each series. So they definitely have gained a lot of experience. But the Greek freak could be going to Miami because we like to claim, it, claim him as one of our own here in Africa. <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean, I mean, with him becoming a free agent very soon, yeah. he could end up anywhere if yeah. he doesn't want to stay in Milwaukee. Um, so that that's going to be the free agent is going to be much like I think uh, we saw last summer with Kawhi Leonard and everybody coveting him. And I think it might be similar to what we saw back uh, now. It's crazy. I think it was 10 years ago with, you know, LeBron James and the decision when he infamously said, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach. So we might see the decision 2.0, but this time from Giannis. But uh, I imagine that his time in Milwaukee, uh, they will get the last say and the last, uh, you know, uh, presentation uh, to him with the options and, and what they can do to, you know, make, take Milwaukee to the next step in the Eastern Conference. Lakers, for you, what was crucial in their, in, in their triumph? Was it a one-man team like many people uh, like to say? Absolutely not. Anthony Davis uh, showed why he was uh, the 1B to LeBron's 1A. And I think, especially in Game 5, uh, to be so, we saw exactly how important he was to this this specific Lakers roster in the sense of when he went down with that uh, re-aggravated foot injury, the Lakers struggled. They struggled mightily in, in uh, closing out that first half. And then he came back in the second half. And we saw his impact again. Uh, I actually thought that he was going into this series the MVP of the Lakers. Um, I know that will ruffle some feathers, especially with the <laughs> LeBron faithful, but that's not a discredit to LeBron and what he's been able to do in his career. I just thought that when he's on the floor, they're a completely different team. And when he's on the floor with a LeBron, they are one of the best teams to play in the NBA and probably one of the best duos uh, should this success continue for for years to come uh however long you know lebron can can play and how however long anthony davis can stay healthy um i think that they could you know put themselves in the conversation of you know one of the best duos the nba has ever seen and i thought we saw that on full display especially in the closeout last night uh early this morning for your folks in south Mm. africa but in no way do i think that this was a one-man-led team and uh, this ring for LeBron, where does it rank in the four that is won now? Two with the Heat and one with the Cavs? I think, for for me personally, I think that this ranks second, right mm-hmm. behind the Cleveland ring uh, that he got a couple of years ago, simply because of the magnitude uh, and the history that was around that one. He brings the first one to uh, the Cleveland organization. He brings the first title to the city of Cleveland in in over 50 years, but as well to the NBA historic comeback down 3-1. I think that was what solidified him truly in, you know, his, his greatness and his excellence and in amongst, you know, the top 50 in NBA history. Uh, But I put this Lakers one behind uh, very close at, at number two, because uh, he said that I would bring a uh, title back to Los Angeles. I would bring the Lakers back into the conversation of greatness, and I'm going to do that. He, he, he's typically a type of player that when he says he's going to do something, 
he he finds a way to stick to his word and follow it up. He said he was going to, you know, when he was leaving Miami to come back to Cleveland, he said, I want to bring a title to Cleveland. He followed through. He leaves uh, Cleveland, goes to Los Angeles, and says, I'm going to bring the Lakers back into greatness. And he's done that. And how many we now see him get after this, uh, you know, we're all in for a fun ride. And, and I think it also puts him in the conversation of, of one of the greats. And I, I personally... Uh, to be so, I'm done with the conversation of who who is the goat because I think I think each one of them. You look at Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, uh, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and LeBron James. They all played in different eras, with the exception of Kobe. You know, the late great Kobe yeah. playing a few years against MJ and a few years against LeBron. I think we need to stop having that conversation. I know, you know, for for what I do and for what you do, we need that conversation uh, for entertainment purposes. But I think. I think in the sense of we need to stop having that conversation. And I think, mm. I think 2020 and especially the loss of Kobe Bryant and his greatness at such a young, young age ha- has put it in perspective. We need to stop trying to pit these players against each other and just enjoy them and embrace their greatness for what we are witnessing because we can lose them so easily and it can be taken away from us in the blink of an eye. And, and that crash uh, in January showed us that. So I personally am no longer going to have that conversation. Growing up, for me, MJ is the GOAT for me. But I do not discredit or turn away the greatness that we are witnessing in LeBron James. He is a generational talent, much like, uh, as I said, a uh, Michael, a Kobe, a Magic, and a Kareem. And, you know, at the end of the day, if it's going to be titles, then Bill Russell takes the cake with 11. Oh, okay. <laughs> Megan, let's leave it there. That's a conversation for another show, an entire hour. But thank you very much <laughs> for speaking to us in South Africa. We really appreciate it. Tabitha, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And hopefully we can talk again soon. Thanks, Megan. Do check it out on social media. Megan McPeak on social media at Megan M-C-P-E-A-K. They're speaking to us all the way from the U.S. She's from Play by Play, a broadcaster of, and of, also at Monumental Sports and Entertainment. Leading sport stories of the day on SAFM. Let's end the show by talking Formula One. Lewis Hamilton claiming a record equaling 91st, uh, 91st uh, race win, equaling Michael Schumacher. Chop Sapuka joins us on the line, the great Chop Sapuka. Good evening, Chops. Thanks for speaking to us. It's not just another win. That's what Lewis Hamilton said. He said this was special, obviously referring to the record. Why is it so significant? Well, Kabuso, good evening to you and your listeners, and thank you for having me. I think it has so much huge significance because... He has uh, actually got into a record which he probably had dreamt about all years as a young man coming into Formula One. And uh, what a dream to see it come come through once he's still active and he's got a very good package behind him to propel him to the 92nd, 93rd, 94th. The list just goes on. Do you think this record was possible? I would think back in the day, people maybe thought that it won't be broken. It, it probably wasn't possible back in the days, but what has also helped propel it forward is because now they do many rounds and they used to do in the back in the days. I think back in the days they used oh. to do between 12, 12 rounds, between 12 and 15 rounds in a championship. Now they're doing 20, 22, so it, it, it actually makes it quite possible. To win 91 races, Chops, it means you have to be at the top of your game for how many years? Is it four or five years? I mean, that's incredible. Look, it all it also has to do with with the car because uh-huh. 
it's one thing when the human being, the human factor is on top of the game and the car is not so much, uh, much more giving to what your talent deserves. Uh, the two com- when you combine the two, then everything comes together. That was going to be my next question. I mean, how much of a good car helps and what makes a great champion? Is it the car or is it the driver? It's a combination of both because you still, we must still remember the driver still got to propel the car. If you look at uh, Bottas, who is his teammate, uh, Lewis has just got more mental strength and more, he's got a very agile ability to be able to read the situation and read the car, nest the tires, and, and just keep pushing. He digs more deeper than Bottas. Not that Bottas doesn't dig more deeper, but I think a lot of things that don't go right in a weekend uh, tend to happen on Bottas than more so on Hamilton. So all those things in a Formula One car or in racing as a whole, they all count towards something. When Lewis Hamilton started out in 07-08 for McLaren, if I remember correctly, was partnering Fernando Alonso there. Did you see, did you think that he would achieve such greatness? He was destined for greatness because he was mentored by one, if not one of the best teams in Formula One. Remember, the, the, McLaren has a whole package with Ron Dennis. They, they breeded champions in the team, likes of Etienne Senna, Ellen Prost, so on and so forth. So if you were adopted by a team at a very young age and you're groomed to come into that position, you're definitely uh, assigned for greatness. And that's what had happened to Lewis Hamilton. He had everything going right his way. He just had to come in and deliver dig deeper and continue to deliver. Do you expect him to continue to deliver because he seems to have the hunger for more? He does have the hunger for more. It just depends if the package is going to match. I don't think Ferrari is out of it. Mm-hmm. I think with the new development that have happened around Honda, it even puts Mercedes in a more pound seat. I think you're going to see Mercedes dominant in the next two years until the rules have changed and everybody's on the same equilibrium and then things will start moving from there. It will be interesting to see how Mercedes will fare with the new rule change against the other teams, which at that time would probably be Red Bull, Ferrari. But Ferrari can forget this season and forget next season. They must be working on the car for 2022. And also, just on Lewis, I mean, he also uses his platforms responsibly and wisely. He's not shy to talk about matters of importance. Does that add to his greatness, or does he just put too much responsibility on himself? Look, I don't think so. I think he's very versatile. I mean, he can be what he wants to be tomorrow. He can be a rapper tomorrow. He can be (laughs) playing a guitar. I mean, the guy does what he likes. He seems to be enjoying life. So I think there are certain things that really are close to his heart and matter the most, and he can be very vocal about it. And of course, he's a, he's, he's a, he's a, champion, in the ma- he's a champion in his own regard, and he's quite a, a well-followed person around the world. So he's, his voice matters in, in, in one way or the other. And what do you say to those who say there's no place for, for those campaigns in sport and in Formula One? I think they must look around the world. Some other, some other sportsmen are, are active in the different platforms. I just think Sometimes because Lewis is Lewis, he becomes more vocal than any other person. So any team or any person who watches Formula One from a different aspect would say, if you follow Formula One through the history of the great acting centers of Michael Schumacher, Alan Prost, 
they were not so vocal about things that were happening on the political arena and around the world. But now you've got these new platforms where you could say whatever you like and a lot of people in the world can view what your opinions are and what you feel and what your strong views are about whatever is happening or trending at the time. So it's times have changed. Okay. Chapsapuka, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on SAFM again tonight. Thank you kindly. Thanks. One of the best also to have done it here in South Africa, Chops Sipuka. Bachobonke, that's his full name there. And uh, talking to us about Formula One. Quick one there for Chapter 2 score update from the IPL. The Royal Challengers Bangalore have won by 82 runs against the Kolkata Knight Riders. RCB made 194 for two. Kolkata reached 112 for nine in their 20 overs. My goodness, what did A.B. De Villiers finish on then? Because he was going strong before we came to um, in the afternoon. I'm trying to find this score. Oh, I can't see it. Oh, man. I can't see what A.B. De Villiers made. He was on 50-odd when I last checked. Oh, he made 73 of 33. Six sixes and five fours. That's our A.B. De Villiers there, setting the IPL alight as usual. Okay, let's leave it there then. It is time for news.